Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 52. Jeremiah chapter 52. And this last chapter of Jeremiah is a review of the fall of Jerusalem. And as we've been studying the last several chapters of Jeremiah, it's God has been bringing judgment upon those idol-worshiping nations that worshiped idols instead of him, the true and the living God. So now as we come to chapter 52, it, it, chapter 52 is kind of like an afterthought or an addition to the book of Jeremiah. As you look at the last verse of chapter 51, it says, notice, thus far are the words of Jeremiah, or this is the end of Jeremiah's messages. Chapter 52 is possibly added by another author. Maybe it was Ezra, who when they came back from the captivity, it could be that <clears throat> he added this last chapter to Jeremiah, uh, these last words, uh, this last chapter to Jeremiah. And some of the things mentioned in this chapter took place in Babylon, possibly even after Jeremiah died. That is the last few verses of the chapter. So it's kind of an addition where he records the fulfillment of the prophecies that Jeremiah had been talking about for some 40 years. Now, Jeremiah was just a teenager. Think about that. You know, we think as adults, well, I don't have what it takes to serve God. I, I, I'm too, maybe too old to, to uh, uh, you know, heed the call of God. Well, Jeremiah was a teenager when he had that call and when he served God. And, and, you know, to go into prophecy, prophesy to the nations, to go and stand before the king, Jeremiah, you know, back in Jeremiah chapter 1, when God called him, Jeremiah objected to the call of God. He said to God, Lord, I'm only a child, I'm a youth. Now, the word youth uh, in, the, in Hebrew at that time meant uh, from, from, from an infant to adolescence. And so he was, uh, most likely, he was a teenager, and, and so, God, I'm only a child. They're not going to listen to me. And the Lord assured Jeremiah that he would be with him. And you see, that's the thing that we always have to remember. When God calls us, he's going to be with us. He doesn't call us and then watch us from the, the, the rearview mirror and say, oh, let me see how he's going to handle this. Let me see how he's going to do this. He's right there with us every step of the way. So Jeremiah was called of God. God assured him, I will be with you, Jeremiah, and I will help you. I will be with you to carry out the ministry that I give you to the nations, warning them about my coming judgment on the nation because they had forsaken the Lord. Back in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, here's the call to Jeremiah. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, notice, before I formed you, Jeremiah, in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, Jeremiah, I sanctified you. I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. Then I said, ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, Jeremiah, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. But I like the beginning verse. He says, Lord, I, I underlined, I formed you. I knew you. I sanctified you. I ordained you before he was even born. 
God had already had a plan for Jeremiah, like he does for all of us. But we need to seek God and find out, Lord, what is it that you have for me? So Jeremiah started his ministry while he was just a teenager, standing at the gate of the temple that had been restored and the worship that had been started up again. Jeremiah was crying to the people as they were going into worship. He would say, hey, don't trust in the line vanities. They were going into the temple and go, oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They were, they were worshiping more the idea that they were going to church than they were worshiping the God of the church. And I think a lot of people do the same thing. They go to church, not to the God of the church. And it's the building, it's the, it's the, 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 the fancy equipment and all the stuff that just ooze and awes them and it's about God. You know, they didn't have those things in, back in the biblical times. They went to see and to be in the presence of God. And so again, Jeremiah was saying, hey, because you're going to worship in the temple again, uh, that wasn't good enough for God. You see, God wanted the people to turn their hearts completely to him. God wanted the people to obey his commandments. And so the revival that took place at the beginning of Jeremiah's prophecy under King Josiah, it was only a superficial revival. Because, you see, it really didn't get down deep into the heart of the nation or the nation's life. Adrian Rogers said, if a church is not supernatural, it's superficial. God had rebuked the people because they had forsaken him. He was the fountain of living waters. And they had carved out, remember Jeremiah said, you guys have carved out cisterns that, 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 that God said can't hold any water. Remember what Jesus said in John 4.10, if you knew the gift of God, he spoke to the woman at the well, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He said in John 4.13.14, 14, whoever drinks of this, of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And in John 7, 38, Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will, will flow rivers gushing water. In other words, God's people had turned to other religions. They had started to worship other gods, and they started to worship idols, and all through the prophecy of Jeremiah, there was the complaint that they were worshiping Molech, Ashtaroth, Baal, and the gods of the heathen. That's why God brought judgment against them. So what does that, what, what does that hold for the United States of America? So we find Jeremiah crying out against these things that God hated, warning the people because of these abominations the things that God hated. He said, if they didn't repent of these things and turn to the Lord with all of their heart, then God would surely allow them to go into captivity and that they would be destroyed by Babylon and they'd be carried away as captives to the strange land. Think about it. And I've said this many times. You can't love God and love and enjoy the things that he hates. So we find here in chapter 52 after Jeremiah had been preaching for 40 years and warning the people for 40 years that the day that Jeremiah had been speaking of had finally come. And we know what the Bible says about 
the end of the age. The, Revelation, the book of Revelation speaks about it. And it's on the way. And one day it's finally going to come. Jeremiah probably had one of the most difficult, difficult calls and ministries that any man ever had. He was called by God to prophesy to a nation that was dying. Jeremiah had to stand by and just watch that nation in its last dying breaths, in, in its last final stages. And Jeremiah had to see it die. Forty years of what you might say was a fruitless ministry. He was called a weeping prophet because nobody, nobody listened to him. Can you imagine being in the ministry for 40 years and not seeing one people, one person come to the Lord and be saved? 40 years of what you might say was a fruitless ministry in the sense that the people didn't respond to the message that he had for them from God. He spoke, but nobody listened. Jeremiah consistently and passionately urged them to act, but nobody did anything. Jeremiah was poor, and he suffered severely. He suffered severe loss in order to deliver God's word to the people. Now, by the world's standards, he would be a failure. Jeremiah, by the world's standards, would be a miserable failure. But remember, success, when it's measured by God, it involves obedience and faithfulness. That's what's a blessing about being a servant of God. Success is up to God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Faithful. You see, the size of a church, the size of the ministry, that's not dependent upon the preacher. It's dependent upon God. What God is going to judge the preacher for, or anybody in ministry, is were you faithful to what I asked you to do? That's it. Did you do what I called you to do? Were you faithful to that call? But the people continued in their evil ways and they continued to do their own thing until they were destroyed. Now let's begin with chapter 52. Verses 1 through 11 covers Jerusalem taken by King Nebuchadnezzar and the rule of King Zedekiah. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 52. And it says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and, and Judah, till he finally cast them out from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So verses 1 through 11 gives us a rundown on Zedekiah's 11-year rule over Judah. This 21-year-old son of Josiah was made king by King Nebuchadnezzar in 597 B.C. after deporting his nephew Jehoiakim. His mother was Hamutal. She was the daughter of Jeremiah. Now, it's not the Jeremiah that we're talking about here that's writ that, that wrote the book of Jeremiah. It's not, there, there were three different Jeremiahs, but uh, not this particular Jeremiah that we're looking at now. She was from Libna. Zedekiah, it says, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, when we read scripture, we read this phrase many times. This is a phrase that's used often in 1 and 2 Kings. 
just as Jehoiakim had done, though there's no specific uh, sin that is named in particular, but it says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, Jerusalem had already been taken by King Nebuchadnezzar in an earlier period. There was actually three attacks that, made, that were made against Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, one was when Daniel, remember, and a group were taken as captives to Babylon. Now, this is about the time, 606 B.C., that Jehoiakim was king and was taken as a captive to Babylon. And Zedekiah was set up by King Nebuchadnezzar. It was by his order that Zedekiah was made king over Judah. And then when, Zedek, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar made Zedekiah king, he made him swear by God that he wouldn't rebel against him, that he wouldn't rebel against Babylon. So he took an oath by the Lord and he wouldn't, that he wouldn't rebel. But in the 11th year of his reign, at 32 years old, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. He continued in his evil ways. That is, they continued to worship other gods. And because God was wanting to judge them, it says in verse 3 here, notice, because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, notice, till he finally cast them out from his presence. We see God's anger here. You know, when, we, when people hear about the anger of God, the wrath of God, it's one of those subjects that, that people don't like to talk about. You know, they, they think of God as, as, as a loving, you know, caring God, which he is. But you see, part of that love is his wrath. But it's something that people don't like to talk about. It's something that people don't like to, to accept. Yet here it is in Scripture. These things happen in, in God's judgment because of the Lord's anger against the people of Jerusalem and Judah. And it, kept, and it kept happening until he finally cast them out of his presence. And he sends them into exile, and King Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Judah. Look at verses 4 and 5. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. These forts mentioned here in verses 4 and 5, these forts were, were tall wooden towers that were higher than the, the city walls of Jerusalem. And in those days, uh, spears and swords and bows and arrows were used in fighting wars. So the people who had the higher elevation, they had the greater advantage. The walls were high. So those who were on the walls could shoot down at those below, so they had a definite advantage. So in order uh, to, to overcome that advantage, the, the Babylonian army, they would build these tall wooden forts that would actually be higher than the city walls. And then from the top of these forts, they could look down into the city, and of course they could shoot their arrows into the city, down at the people to harass them. So King Nebuchadnezzar's army built these forts around Jerusalem in preparation for taking this city. And he sieged this city. He, he surrounded this city for about 18 months, which means that he surrounded the city, cutting off the supplies from coming into Jerusalem. And as a result of the siege, there was no bread for the people, no water in the land. The famine got so bad that the people were, were suffering big time because of the famine. 
And, as is the case with human nature, when people get desperate, they become almost like animals, destroying one another, and especially when it comes to their hunger. If you read the accounts of Josephus, the Jewish historian, about just this siege of Jerusalem, he records the horrible slaughters that were going on in Jerusalem as the people were fighting one another for the food. Gangs started to form, and they started fighting against each other inside Jerusalem. And there are reports that there were more Jews killed by Jews than were actually killed by the Babylonians, the enemy. And then later on, in the blockade of the Romans in 70 AD, the same thing was repeated. And Josephus records that, that siege uh, in great detail. So there was tremendous fighting that was going on by the Jews because they were fighting for survival. They were fighting for food, and it became really a fierce and horrible experience inside the city walls of Jerusalem. Then the famine started to take its toll. Look at verses 6 through 8. So by the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the famine had become so severe in the city, notice that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city wall was <clears throat> broken through, and all the men of war fled and went out of the city at night by way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, were near the city all around, and they went by way of the plain. Verse 8, But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from them. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the city's food and water supply was gone. It was all used up. And the suffering resulting from the lack of food is described in Lamentations, which, again, as we finish the chapter, uh, we'll see that uh, next time we're together. Because of their weakened condition, due to the lack of food, the people couldn't fight, and they couldn't defend the city walls, which were broken down by the people inside. It wasn't the enemy who broke down the walls. It was people on the inside because of the terrible thing, uh, suffering they were going through. The lack of food, the lack of water. So they, were, they broke down the walls from the inside so they could get out of the city that was doomed. Israel's army, it says here, slipped through the gate between the two walls behind the king's garden at night, and they headed toward the Jordan Valley. And Ezekiel chapter 12, verses 12 through 14, gives added details about their escape. Though we're not given any details as how they were able to escape through the barricade with all of those soldiers around the city, but somehow, again, in their desperation, they managed. You know, when there's a will, there's a way, and they were desperate. But they probably, it was probably because they knew the surrounding terrain. They knew the territory. They were familiar with it. So it was probably a reason that would have helped them to escape through enemy lines without being seen. So the Babylonian army went after King Zedekiah. They captured him in the plains of Jericho. And his troops had deserted him because they were all trying to save their own life. Look at verses 9 through 11. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he pronounced judgment on him. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he killed all the princes of Judah in Riblah. He also put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and the king of Babylon bound him in bronze fetters, took him to Babylon, and put him in prison until the day of his death. So King Zedekiah was captured and he was taken to King Nebuchadnezzar's 
headquarters in Riblah, in the land of Hamath, where Nebuchadnezzar pronounced sentence on King Zedekiah. His two sons, King Zedekiah's two sons, and all of the captured officials were killed right in front of Zedekiah. The last thing that Zedekiah would ever remember was seeing his sons killed right before his eyes. And then, I mean, this was a really cruel act. Then <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar had Zedekiah's eyes gouged out, bound in shackles, and taken to Babylon where he was put in prisoner, and he was kept there until the day he died. The last thing he saw was his two sons killed right before they plucked out his eyes and then put in prison to stay there till the day he died. That would be the last thing he remembered. King Zedekiah was probably spared from being executed with his sons, uh, as his sons were, so that he could be paraded through the streets of Babylon like a trophy of war. Because that's what, the, that what they would do in those days. Pretty much like what happened to Samson. After the Philistines captured Samson, they took him, they put out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza. They tied him up with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. And then it says, the lords of the Philistines, they gathered together, they offered a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and they rejoiced. And they said, our god has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. And when the people saw him, they praised their god, their false god. And they said, our god, Dagon, has delivered him into our, into our hand, the enemy. Destroy, they, uh, the destroyer of our land, talking about Samson, the one who multiplied our dead. So it happened when their hearts were married that they said, call for Samson that he may perform for us. They humiliated him in front of everybody. So they called Samson from the prison and he performed for them. So it was a pretty disgraceful ending for Samson, to say the least, as it was here for the king, the wicked king Zedekiah. His eyes were put out. He was carried away to Babylon where he was put in prison until the day that he died. And then in Ezekiel chapter 12, there's a really interesting prophecy by Ezekiel, who was a contemporary to Jeremiah, with the exception that Ezekiel was prophesying in the land of Babylon. He was one of the captives. He had been taken as a captive to Babylon, so he was in Babylon prophesying and saying much the same thing that Jeremiah was saying, who was in Jerusalem. They were both prophesying, but in two different places. So Ezekiel was in Babylon, and Jeremiah was in Jerusalem. But in Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 13, this is what God said. God said, I will also spread my net over him, and he shall be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. And he's talking about Zedekiah. Now, this is an interesting prophecy, because the Lord said there in Ezekiel 12, 13, he says, I'm going to bring Zedekiah to Babylon, but he's not going to see it, yet he's going to die there. So to Zedekiah, okay, it seemed to Zedekiah, according to Josephus, the historian, that this was a contradiction. Because when you think about it, how in the world, Zedekiah saying, how in the world can I be taken to Babylon and not see it? So he basically put down the whole prophecy. He put down the prophecy of Jeremiah saying that, you know, you'll be taken to Babylon and then Ezekiel says, yeah, you guys can't even get, to, he says, but, but you're not going to see it. So how can you be taken to Babylon but not see it? It sounded like they were both saying two different things. So he says, 
he says, you guys, Ezekiel, and, and, and you know, you, you guys can't even get together. You know, Jeremiah, you can't even get together on your prophecy. Because Ezekiel, Ezekiel is saying, Zedekiah is going to be taken to Babylon and die there, but he's not going to see it. So like I said, he disregarded the prophecy. But here at Ribla, Nebuchadnezzar put out his eyes so that when he came to Babylon, just like Jeremiah said he would, he didn't see it. Just like the prophet Ezekiel said he would, because his eyes had been gouged out. So again, God's word was fulfilled, as it always is. People are always looking for contradictions to try to put down the Bible, but they're not there. Now, verses 12 through 27 covers the destruction of Jerusalem. Let's look at verses 12 through 16 now. Now, in the fifth month, <clears throat> on the tenth day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all of the walls of Jerusalem all around. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poor people, the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the craftsmen. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. So these men went back to Jerusalem after taking Zedekiah to Riblah. And then <clears throat> Nebuzaradan, the guard, the, the guard of the prison, the, 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 the uh, king of the guard, Nebuzaradan and this elite group of men came back to Jerusalem for the specific purpose of ransacking the city completely, burning it down, destroying the city, just to make it a pile of, of useless rubble, just to make it unfit to live in. They burned the house of the Lord. They burned the temple that Solomon built. They burned the king's palace and all of the houses in Jerusalem. They broke down the walls all around Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took some of the poorest of the people as exiles, the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had declared their allegiance to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the craftsmen. But Nebuzaradan, he allowed some of the poorest people to stay behind in Judah just to take care of the vineyards and the fields. Look at verses 17 through 19. The bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord and the carts and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord. The Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all their bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the bowls, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils with which the priests ministered. The spoons and all the bronze, uh, uh, verse 19, the basins, the fire pans, the bowls, the pots, the lampstands, the spoons and the cups, whatever was solid gold and whatever was solid silver, the captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, one seed, the twelve bronze bulls which were under it, and the carts which King Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. Now concerning the pillars, the height of one pillar was 18 cubits. A measuring line of 12 cubits uh, could measure its circumference, and its hollow was uh, its thickness was four fingers, and it was hollow. Verse 22. A capital of bronze was on it, and the height of one capital was five cubits, with a network and pomegranates all around it. The second pillar with pomegranates was the same. There were 96 pomegranates 
on the sides and all the pomegranates all around on the network were 100. So before destroying the city, the Babylonians looted and robbed the city, uh, robbed the temple of its bronze. Silver and gold articles uh, were robbed that would be of some value to them. They broke the bronze articles into smaller pieces to make it easier for them to carry away. They included the bronze pillars and the stands that were used to move the smaller vessels from place to place. They also took the bronze sea, which was used for ritual washing. And then verses 18 through 23, you know, it described several of the other items that were also taken away. Now look at verses 24 through 27. The captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of them uh, of war, uh, who were in charge of the men of war. Seven men of the king's close associates who were found in the city, the principal scribe of the army who mustered the people of the land, and six, uh, 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. And, Zep, and, and Nebuzaradan, the ca uh, captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. Thus, Judas was carried, uh, Judah, uh, thus Judah was carried away captive from his own land. So Nebuzaradan, he takes the chief priest Sariah and Zephaniah, the priest who was next in rank, and he also took the doorkeepers. They held an important position in the temple. They were probably high-ranking priests who served as caretakers in the temple. And then Nebuzaradan says, also took the city office, uh, officer in charge of the fighting men. He took seven advisors, men who were in, in the king's inner uh, circle and who had access to him, and many others are listed as well. All of these people took the city officer. I'm sorry, all of these people that were singled out in verse 25 are probably a warning to others who might think about rebelling against him. Look at verses 28 through 30. These are the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive in the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. In the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem 832 persons. In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzaradan, the, uh, the captain of the guard, carried away captive of the Jews 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. So 3,000 23 Jews were taken by Babylon from the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign in 605 B.C. And then in Nebuchadnezzar's 18th year, he took 832 more. Then in Nebuchadnezzar's 23rd year, he sent Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, who took 745 more for a total of 4,600 captives in all. And then verses 31 through 34 to the end of the chapter covers the release of Jehoiachin from prison. Notice verse 31 through 34 now. Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed from his prison garments, and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king of Babylon, a portion for, for each day until the day of his death, all the days of his life. 
So on the 25th day of the 12th month, evil Merodach, or it's called man of Marduk, it says lifted up the head of Jehoiachin. Now to lift up the head is an expression that can indicate favor. In other words, lift up the head is to raise him up in position. So evil Merodach gave Jehoiachin a seat of honor. That's what it means by lifting up his head. He gave him a seat of honor above all the conquered kings who sat at his table. Now it was a common thing to do for a victorious ruler to keep captive kings at his court as a reminder of his victories. And also it would be a warning to those around him, to the subjects of that king, don't mess with me. Don't rebel against me. Look at all these guys sitting around here. I conquered them. And for the rest of Jehoiachin's life, it says that he ate regularly at the king's table. Every day until he died, he was given a regular allowance by the king. Remember, David said that to Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, in 2 Samuel 9, 7. He said, as for Mephibosheth, said the king, that is David, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's son continually. So the addition of Jehoiachin's release as the ending for the book of Jeremiah was probably intended to communicate to the downhearted Jews that just as Jehoiachin had been freed, one day also they would be freed. So the book of Jeremiah ends on a positive note that a descendant of David was still alive and through him the kingdom would be reestablished. And Jeremiah promised a restored Davidic ruler. So chapter 52 isn't an unnecessary afterthought. As I have mentioned, it's a review, again, of, of the destruction of Jerusalem. It's not just an afterthought. And I've said it many times. You know, there's nothing in, in the Bible that, that God did not intend to be there. From Genesis to Revelation, the Holy Spirit put these books together in the scriptures and God has a purpose for everything that he's, he's put into the scriptures. So again, it's not an unnecessary afterthought. It's not some unimportant addition to the book. Instead, the chapter seems to say the divine word has been fulfilled and it will be fulfilled. So Jehoiachin's last days in Babylon weren't too bad. He died in Babylon. Jeremiah had prophesied that no king from this line would again sit on the throne of David. So this ends the line of David through his son Solomon. The son of David who will sit on that throne through all eternity was born through another line, the line of Nathan. Mary was born in that line, and it's in that line that Jesus Christ has the claim to the throne of David. And this is why the book of Jeremiah ends with these important details about the royal line. So in closing, the greatest reward of ministry is to become like Jesus Christ. When Jesus asked his disciples, who, people, who, who do people say that I am? Some said, well, you're John the Baptist. Some said, you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I mean, can you imagine? What a compliment. Some say Jesus was Jeremiah. I mean, what a compliment it would be to have people say, hey, Jesus is like you. 
Because the similarities between Jesus and Jeremiah are interesting. Because Jesus and Jeremiah's approach to teaching and preaching were the same. They both used action sermons. They both used a lot of pictures or parables from everyday life and nature. Jesus and Jeremiah spoke out against the surface religion practiced in the temple. And they were both accused of being traitors to their people. And they both suffered physically. They were both arrested, beaten, and confined. Jesus and Jeremiah wept over Jerusalem. And both of them were were rejected by their relatives. And both of them knew what it was to be misunderstood, lonely, and rejected. Jeremiah and Jesus emphasized the need of faith in the heart. And they both rejected the mere symbols of religion that was outward and powerless. Jeremiah became like Jesus because he shared the fellowship of his sufferings. And in the furnaces of life, Jeremiah was conformed to the image of God's Son. Jeremiah may not have realized that this process was going on in his life. Jeremiah might have denied it if it were, if it was, you know, if it were pointed out to him, but the transformation was going on just the same. And you know it's the same with your life and my life. There's a process going on in our life, you guys. We don't know what it is many times, but God is always at work. There's a transformation going on in our life. We, as as Paul said, we are being renewed day by day. The same Lord who enabled Jeremiah can enable us. The same world that opposed Jeremiah is going to oppose you and me. It's time for God's people to be decisive and to stand firm. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for this book of Jeremiah, Lord, and the the months that we've spent in it, Lord. And Father, we we thank you for the word. We thank you for all that there is there, God, and, and all that you teach us, Lord. Father, now begin to move in our hearts as we move into Lamentations, Father, and, and on through through the, uh, New Test- uh, the Old Testament, God. Father, we thank you, we love you, we give you honor and glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right.